Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. Fresh out of the water after trying to defend me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> More on the Battle of Montgomery later. I'm Nick Sperry. Oh, we're going to get into that Battle of Montgomery. If you do not see the most viral clip uh, in social media history, potentially, in the fight that went down Montgomery, Alabama, that will be coming up in our last segment. On the program today, the former president of the United States, the front runner for the GOP, we have not examined his platform for 2024 and what the former president is really running on. All we've been talking about are his indictments. Nick and I will weigh in on former President Trump as he's out and about and leading this field for the 24 race for the GOP side. Plus, later on the program, immigration reporter over at the El Paso Times, Lauren Villagrand, she's going to hop on the podcast to break down everything that's been happening lately at our U.S. southern border the recent lawsuit by the Biden administration against Governor Abbott for placing some buoys illegally, potentially in the water. Uh, we're going to find out all about that. Lauren's going to break all of that down in our second segment. And then in our last segment, like Nick mentioned, we fight on that lie to quote the wire. And we're going to find out what they were fighting about in Montgomery, Alabama. More on that later on the program. First, I say hello to Mr. Severi jumping into a, a lake. If I ever fight by a lake, as if you're going to jump in there like you're Aquaman and, and the video of that guy jumping in to help his friend. How have you been, sir? Have you been by a lake? Have you been by a body of water, given how hot it is where you are? Yeah. I mean, I we were by a pool recently. We we're down in Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, just taking the girls there. We it's it's fun. Folks, have you not been to Hershey, Pennsylvania? Awesome. Yes, there's chocolate, but the town itself was great. So we were there for the weekend. 
and just yeah august is our time to to hit the road july has been busy my wife's had a lot of new and awesome experiences at work so august is our time to take some time here and there for for our kids before our oldest you know goes off to enter third grade and such so but things are good here hot but not nearly as hot as you and just appreciative um but also we're seven weeks away from football returning and that that certainly makes me happy how mm-hmm. have have you been your weekend and everything else i'm good man everything's going good man you know we uh we try to record our episodes like around a time where you and i have a relaxed household for people that don't know how we record this show it's like everybody's asleep. You and I are recording this. It's almost like the secretive thing that you and I do. It's very weird. If you think about it, like in that terms, it's like, all right, it's 10 o'clock, uh, Nick at 10 PM. Uh, do you know where Nick Severi is to quote that old TV slogan of, do you know where your children are? But, uh, everything's going good, man. I can't, uh, I can't complain. We've got, I posted something on our Instagram, by the way, follow us over at can we please talk podcast on IG. I posted something about how busy of a month we're going to have here on the show. We've got uh, Lauren in the next segment, uh, we've got Corey Nathan, the host of this great podcast, Talking Politics and Religion So We Don't Kill Each Other. I mean, talk about a, a great name for a podcast, but he's going to be joining us in the coming weeks to talk about his show and some of the topics that are playing out on his show, some of the things that he's seen in his life, his story. Um, we, we're doing something with the GOP debates with a former Democratic strategist, Republican strategist that will be on the podcast. We got a federal judge coming on the program in the coming in the coming weeks to promote a new book, but also talk about these federal judges in these cases around the former president. Like, what is it like? What's the expectation when you go into a federal courtroom? Because there's no TV cameras in these courtrooms. We don't know what these proceedings are going to be like and how this stuff's going to play out. So we've got a jam packed August and I'm excited to get into some of this stuff. And as we get into the fall, we get into the cycle of you know, covering some of these things and and you and I will be doing some podcast appearances, TV appearances. I'm excited about it all, man. Like, it's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm waiting for the summer to like wrap up. Like you said, get in the football season, get into the fall, get back into the swing of everything that I'm used to get rid of this heat wave as best as we can. So uh, let's get into our first segment though. Cause it funnels in perfectly because we were just talking about the former president and I hit you up earlier today. We always, for the audience listening out there, Nick and I always go back and forth. Like, what do we want to talk about? In the first segment, should we talk about this? Should we talk about that? What's been in the news? And then normally, second segment, we got a guest. So I was reading a New York Times article that it's really an opinion piece wrapped in some, you know, reporting from one of the reporters that works at the Times. And it says Trump's 2024 campaign seeks to make voters the ultimate jury. Donald Trump has long understood, I'm reading from the article, The stakes in the election, the court may decide his cases, but only voters can decide whether to return him to power. And it got me thinking, we've talked about some of the other candidates for the GOP nomination, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and Governor Ron DeSantis. Those are the four primary folks that are doing respectively in the low single digits, maybe one of them has creeped into the double digits, like DeSantis in in a couple of different states that have been polled. Um, but none of them have the power that the current front runner for the party has. So in this first segment, Nick and I want to examine a little bit more of what the former president is facing in the political calendar and the courtroom calendar over the next uh, 12 to 18 months as we get to November of 2024. But then also 
he's been making a bunch of campaign stops. He's been giving a bunch of different pressers. He's been putting things on social media, not only about his candidacy, but about his opponent. If he wins the GOP nomination, he's been disparaging the rest of the field. Let them fight it out on the on the first GOP debate as he tweeted out or truthed out, excuse me, on Truth Social. And then maybe I'll choose one of them to be my vice president. So is his lead so far away? Is he is he the hair so far away that there's no tortoise that can catch up to him? I wanted to examine that in our first segment. But first, I want you to hear from the former president of the United States as he recently made a campaign stop. And you can hear in his own words what he's running on and his platform. Take a listen to this. Have you ever seen anything like what's going on? I mean, I never heard the word indictment. Then all of a sudden, over a period of a couple of weeks, you get four indictments. They do this to try and win an election. Nobody ever thought it was possible. It's done in third world countries. It's not done in this country. And as Henry said, those indictments aren't worth the paper they're written on. You know, they don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. It's a disgrace. They should be going after the people that rigged it. In just four short years, we already achieved more than any administration in the history of our country. If you take a look at what we've done, there's been no administration that has done what we've done. So many things. We appointed over 300 federal judges and three great Supreme Court justices. Look at what happened even just the other day. And last year, those justices ruled to end Roe v. Wade. And I have to tell you, the pro-lifers have now a tremendous power to negotiate, which they didn't have before the ruling. They have to understand how to talk about it. Folks, for a little bit of background here, I mentioned I was going to play a clip of him talking about his platform and what he's running on. That was a two-hour, or th- excuse me, three-hour event. And Trump spoke, I think, at around the 35, 40-minute mark of this event. I went through two and a half hours of video from this event and producer Tim and I trying to find some pieces that we can use so you can listen to the man in his own words, talk about his accomplishments and talk about what it is he has as a vision for this country for 2024. And the majority of it was about the Biden administration prosecuting him and the indictments and then the 2020 election. The one piece that you heard there about the federal judges and the nomination is something that I was able to grab. So kudos to me and producer Tim. One thing I did want to mention to you, uh, Nick, because I went back into the archives of you know, uh, the records and you can see all of like the press releases that came out from the White House during the Trump administration. So this is from trumpwhitehouse.archives.gov. And this was, again, as of January of 2021. So as the president was exiting office or not exiting office, the courts will decide that. He said, this is from a press release here and all the things that he said he accomplished and that he hasn't really either emphasized on this campaign trials. He's done interviews with Sean Hannity, Brett Baer, because he's been asked a lot about the indictments and the charges and all of these things. But these are some things that the former president touted before he left. Uh, And this is how he said it. So I want to read word for word what it says on TrumpWhiteHouse.archives.gov. Before the China virus invaded our shores. You got that, Nick? You wrote that down? Before the China virus invaded our shores. This is a real line. We built the world's most prosperous economy. 
America gained 7 million new jobs, more than three times government expert projections. Middle-class family income increased nearly $6,000, more than five times the gains under the previous administration. Unemployment rate reached 3.5%, achieved 40 months in a row with more job openings than job hirings. More Americans reported being employed than ever, nearly 160 million reported. That number has been claimed. Um, jobless claims hit a nearly 50-year low. Incomes rose in every single metro area in the United States for the first time in nearly three decades. And the number of people claiming unemployment insurance as a share of the population hits its lowest record. Um, there was some other stuff, again, about factories and jobs coming back to the United States, a 1.2 million manufacturing and construction jobs. Again, these are things you can go check out at trumpwhitehouse.archives.gov. The reason I'm bringing that up is because, again, a three-hour campaign stop and a dinner that the front runner for the GOP nomination for 2024 is saying, and a lot of it turns into um, the grievances that he has against the Biden DOJ for the indictments that are brought against them with respect to special counsel Jack Smith in these last two cases. And then he rarely touches on the New York case in a lot of this stuff. And then there's a potential fourth indictment coming from uh, the, uh, the state of Georgia there. So Nick, I turn to you now to kind of analyze a little bit of the front runner who will potentially face off against President Biden in 2024. All the polling that we have seen so far and all the political analysts that are out there, uh, again, the polling from the New York Times Siena poll, um, Quinnipiac's poll, Rasmussen's poll, any of them will all tell you that Donald Trump is miles ahead of Governor Ron DeSantis, who's the closest one in second, and Vivek Ramasani uh, in, in third, and he's a close third to Governor Ron DeSantis. And as much as I want to uh, really kind of talk about what it is that they're doing wrong to catch this guy, there's got to be something about what is this guy doing right that is so far away from those folks? Because on the surface, and I've heard other political podcasts talk about this, He's indicted three times. He's going to have six trials set for next year, a couple civil, one involving the Trump organization, and then these two federal indictments and the New York case, potentially all within a calendar year of 2024. And he already has a few scheduled for this year that his lawyers will be attending. Who knows if he'll be back in court for any of these. Uh, potentially, he'll be back in court for the indictment in Georgia, obviously. Wh what is it about the Trump campaign that is steamrolling everybody so far in this first half of, of the primary season here in 2023? And then what do you make of the platform the speeches, none of it really targeting what he's going to do in 2024 or touting anything that potentially he could claim as a victory from when he left office because everything's muddled in the, oh, by the way, I tried to overthrow our you know peaceful transfer of power process. What do you make of it all? Yeah, I, I think that as, as strange and incoherent a message it is, it's still the most clear out of the other candidates, uh, more so certainly than Ron DeSantis. I mean, DeSantis is essentially run on an, a platform that is considered what he considers, you know, anti-woke. And for the life of us, he still can't define what that word means. 
and it may have carried weight in Florida, but it's certainly not something that's landing nationally. You know, with with Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, there is there is a coherent message there, but I think the Republican Party, at least its most vocal group, is very much enamored with with MAGA. I mean, I think I think what Trump unearthed brought back from the Reagan administration is still the mantra of the party, or at least its most outspoken people. And as a result, he's the face of it. You know, what Trump represents to these folks is the ability to say what you want, be who you are, and do it at the at the harm of others. It, it's it's freedom to be a bigot. It's freedom to be ignorant. Um you know, when we think about what accomplishments he's had in office, there's a reason why he doesn't talk much about what he's done, you know, as president, because it's not really much. I mean, aside from a massive tax cut, you know, stepping away from the Paris Treaty in terms of, um, you know, the U.S. continue to make a commitment to addressing climate change and getting three Supreme Court justices on or get, you know, getting three justices through, which, by the way, is not an accomplishment to him. It's an accomplishment to the fact that you happen to have a Republican majority in the Senate. That's more about Mitch McConnell than it may well be about the former president. So, you know, when you ask me, like, what is it about his message that resonates? It's the fact that there are just people in this country, about 40 percent at this point, that feel that they want to operate freely. Now, it's funny because these people say the same thing and they're the same folks who hand their, put their hand out when there's a, a, a crisis. You know, suddenly FEMA means something to people in Florida, but not the rest of the time, you know, where it's where woke goes to die. So the, Trump represents what the Republican Party currently is. There's no policy vision. This is simply about going after any effort <laughs> to try to you know, broaden the scope of dialogue for people who are non for non-white men um you know when when trump had talked about the the issues that we have with china in terms of that they operate in bad faith that they are not a good trade partner he's not lying about that the problem is that in the four years he had as president what actually has happened in terms of our trade relations with china it has not gotten better we don't have the better hand in that relationship and fundamentally I say this to anyone who asks me about the former president, as someone who grew up in the Northeast like you did in the tri-state area, we've all known that the resume of this person is one of failure. This is a person who had casinos in Atlantic City, now does not have casinos in Atlantic City. This is a person who has stiffed many a people on the bill. This is a person who has gone through one bad marriage after another. And listen, I'm not here to judge whether that works or not. That's simply the fact. This is a person who suddenly become pro-life when he had been pro-choice previously. It was well known that Donald Trump was more likely a Democrat than he was a Republican until he got his ass handed to him at the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner. Everyone has seen it. Ever after President Obama tore him a new one, he has been hell-bent. And he did that, by the way, the former president did, President Obama, because Trump decided to make make a name for himself in Republican circles going after his birth certificate. But notice what I'm doing again. I'm not talking about the policies of the former president, because what really is there to talk about? If and if you think I'm lying, if you think I'm just being a libtard or whatever, you know, some adults on you know social media. But thanks for engagement anyway. Want to say simply go just do a Google search to go to Trump's website right now to see a policy vision. When you do a simple search, which I did as we were talking about, it'll take you to a website called winred.com. 
and it's simply Trump's campaign site. But most campaign sites have, you know, buttons that tell you, hey, let's go. Let's take a look at these different elements of a policy vision. Everyone has that. Not the former president. All that he has is just a couple of buttons that say how much money you want to give him. And if you look at what the text reads, it just simply says, let's see, nuggets like the left thinks that if they bury me with enough witch hunts and intimidate my family, by the way, the left, not necessarily every judge (laughs) or even special counsel Jack Smith, whose political affiliation I have no idea on is necessarily leaning left, leaning left, but this is a scare tactic or a move that foreign president does. But if they bury me with enough witch hunts and intimidate my family and associates, then I'll eventually throw up my hands and give up on our America first movement. I knew the price I'd have to pay for running a campaign that promised to here it comes to take on the deep state, the open borders lobby, global special interest and the Soros money machine. Nothing there tells us what he'll do if he wins. I have said this in private circles. I'll bring it here. The only reason that this man wants to try to win the presidency is to stay out of the courts. That's it. That's why there is no policy vision, because he has spent no time over the last four years thinking of what happens if I can get back in the White House from a policy vision. None, because he doesn't care. He simply wants to get there because, as he proved, When he was president, he can be essentially bulletproof. He can get away from this level of litigation. That's what he's trying to avoid. And the White House is a place of power for him. I would like him to have a policy vision. I'd like Republicans in general to have one because it would be nice to have an actual discourse as to where the the country should be moving toward. But this is where the modern day Republican Party is right now. And he is the perfect vision for it. And it's why he carries a lot of weight. It's just unfortunate because strategically he shot himself in the foot, essentially, with his stance on being against abortion, because we are seeing poll after poll that's telling us it's a losing argument. If you doubt me, go look at the recent referendum in Kansas of all places. So, you know, of all the candidates, because we've talked about, you know, some of the others, you know, even I mean, way back when we talked about Carrie Lake. Right. And you can even see her education about charter schools and stuff like that. Now, I don't agree with it, but at least I know where she's coming from. This guy just simply has a website asking you for money. So if you want to spend 24, 47, 100, 250, 500, 1,000, or $3,300 for the Trump Save America joint fundraising campaign, have at it. Yeah. You know, again, two things for me. The first thing is I watched three hours of video to try to find him articulating first day in office. This is what we're going to do, right? Like real simple, just from this one specific dinner, I'm not going back into the annals of the last month and all of his different clips. And again, a lot of it was really indictment focused. Now, again, in fairness to him, if I was under indictment in a bunch of different places and I felt I hadn't done anything wrong, I would be getting out there in front of the court of public opinion, right? Whether it muddies the jury pool or not, like telling my story, right? Hey, I'm innocent and here's why, right? So I get that. I get that. No no issues with it, but not three hours worth of it, my friend. The second thing is, is there's a great interview that Brett Baer did with Governor Ron DeSantis on the Brett Baer podcast that you can go check out. And 
in that podcast, DeSantis is really talking about um, how Trump used to support him until the midterms, right as Governor DeSantis was about to win by such a large margin, Trump kind of flipped because he felt he had an adversary. He felt he had somebody that was akin to him policy-wise, but just didn't have some of this other baggage. Now, that hasn't translated into percentage points for the governor out of Florida. And I've obviously articulated why I think that is, because what happens in the state doesn't translate nationally, right? This 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 make Florida America type uh, platform is not going to work in, you know, the blue walls uh, conceivably of Wisconsin and Michigan and stuff like that. So I, again, I would like to examine a little bit more of what the former president thinks about 2024 and first days in office, but it's very scary because he's under indictment in three states and potentially a fourth upcoming uh, we leave it there in terms of our first segment because very interesting to see what happens in the coming weeks. Like I said, the first GOP primary debate, will he or won't he show up to that debate to kind of see what he looks like on camera? I got to be honest, if I was advising him, there's no reason to go to that. You're up so much in a lot of these polls. You you gain nothing by going to a debate, the, except you could put those folks further down and get some folks that drop out of the race, like Asa Hutchinson, like Governor Christie, like some other folks that are polling at 2%, 1%, that, you know what, again, just like he did in 2015, endearing himself to the crowds, giving the nicknames, all of that stuff returns, and he could endear some more folks. Who knows? But we'll see. And you'll hear our episode once the first GOP primary debate happens, Wednesday, August 23rd. Check out that episode that we'll be posting that night. With Reaction, Democratic strategist Marie Hart will be joining us, Republican strategist Maura Gillespie will be joining us. So check out that episode. When we come back after the break, the fantastic immigration reporter over at the El Paso Times, Lauren Villagrand, she hops on everything that's been happening at the U.S. southern border. Lauren breaks it down when we come back after the break. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Quick break from our pod to tell you about a new pod at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Envy Pods. So if you go to freshroastedcoffee.com, my partner's shaking his head. That's a good transition. What are you? Are you kidding me? It was good. No, I shook my head. I was like, that's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Because you. You, I, I saw this picture earlier. I was like, I saw, it, I saw what you're doing. That's right. It is a fantastic transition, Nick, if I do say so myself. Listen, the new Envy Pods over at our partners at Fresh Roasted Coffee. These pods are environmentally safe. They are compostable. And let me tell you something. When you open these individually wrapped pods, Nick, they smell absolutely delicious. You can check out these new pods from our sponsors over at freshroastedcoffee.com and enter in the promo code, new promo code, can we please get 20, all one word, and the number 20, can we please get 20 for 20% off your purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. All right, here to break down everything happening at our U.S. southern border. We can't turn to anybody better because we've reached out to a bunch of people and they don't hit us back. Only this person hits us back. And we're going to get into that what in a second. What are you doing right there? No, I'm going to get into right it in a second. Because it makes her sound like she's second or third. Aunt. Come on. No, will you we shut up? Like, we go well, to got, her and that's it. Will you shut up? No, I, I reach out to other people and they don't want to come on the on the program to talk about the border. She's the one that always comes on and she's always willing to help. And that is fantastic immigration reporter over at the El Paso Times, Lauren Villagran. Lauren, Mike and Nick, sorry for the intro, but thank you for coming on the program again. Thanks. I'd love to know who was number one, two, three, and four. Oh, that's my point. Uh... I don't know why I'm pointing this way because she appears on my well, on my right. I'm going to get into this because a few of them are in your article. Representative Veronica Escobar uh, has not uh, reached back out. The mayor of El Paso gave us. Uh, I don't. I've never heard of you before in my life, and so I wanted to bring that up on the show because you're there. You're interviewing these folks. I want to get into that in just a second. But um, in all seriousness, Lauren, you know we love your reporting and we love some of the work you've been doing. A few weeks back, I reached out to you because there was this article about, you know, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott uh, taking the buoys from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle video game in Super Nintendo and throwing them out there in the middle of a river to block people. And I said, "Wow, what is going on? I reached out to you and I said, I would love to have you on the program to kind of explain all of this. And now the recent lawsuit, uh, what he's been saying in the court of public opinion about the Department of Justice and the Biden administration. Can you take our audience a little bit inside everything that happened over the last few weeks. We've had a little bit of news that's on our mind nationwide that has gotten a little bit more coverage. Uh, so take us through what happened uh, a few weeks back with all of this and where is it all netting out right now? Yeah, well, we should remember that Governor uh, Greg Abbott in Texas is not the first person to do this. He's not the first governor. We've seen other governors try to erect different types of border obstacles, border barriers. Um, we saw last year, uh, then Governor Ducey in Arizona uh, put together that string of like train cargo, like train cargo boxes. Ultimately, the Biden administration sued Ducey and those um, cargo containers were, you know, had to be removed. So, you know, it, it, of course, it's nothing new for elected officials or politicians generally to use the border for any number of reasons. Um, here in El Paso, we had not seen much from the governor until late December when y'all will remember El Paso was experiencing a large influx of asylum seekers 
at our border. You probably remember those pictures of people, families waiting in line, like south of the border wall, covered in blankets. It was a pretty dramatic time. The city was working really hard to um, to take care of everybody who was released by Border Patrol, you know, found to have at least some kind of legitimate claim. And then in January, because, well, I don't know that it was because there's some debate about the timing of Governor Abbott's intervention here in El Paso. Um, the city, in any case, declares a state of emergency. And a few short weeks later, Governor Abbott um, sends the Texas National Guard into El Paso. And we start seeing the beginning of, I'm getting to your question, the beginning of, of this, um, you know, these additional border barriers, right? So in El Paso, it has been um, concertina wire, razor wire that is unfolded in reams. It's it's stacked six feet high in the riverbed of the Rio Grande. All those photos where you saw people waiting to seek asylum, that whole area, the whole river canal is filled with this concertina wire. Then we see in recent weeks, things escalate again with the concertina wire being placed in um, at the border, at the Texas border, between Eagle Pass and Piedras Negras. These are two pretty small towns, okay? Piedras Negras, I think, is a little bigger than Eagle Pass. They have this amazing park that's like this beautiful green space, um, kind of in the shadow of the International Bridge, right at the riverbank on the Eagle Pass side. And there's also, I think, a little park on the Piedras Negras side. But it's just this place where you really like see the seam of the U.S. and Mexico. Um, and, and the river is beautiful there. Here in El Paso, it's channelized to, to be an irrigation canal. But there it's like this natural flowing river. It's very green. Um, it's beautiful. And we know that it is also beautiful, um, so much so that a retired teacher in Eagle Pass had started like an outfitter to take people on river rides. Okay, so this is not a place that's awful and militarized. It was a place that, um, you know, where, I don't know, borderlanders live their daily lives and people cross the border. There is, of course, also undocumented immigration. So in recent weeks, we have seen, as everyone I'm sure has seen the news stories, Governor Abbott decides to deploy a different kind of barrier. And if I can get into the reason for this, y'all probably know that the U.S.-Mexico borderline is actually the middle of the river. Once somebody's on the other side, on the north side of the river, they technically, under U.S. law, have the right to claim asylum. So I'm guessing that that was part of the thinking um, on the part of the governor's administration that if we put a barrier literally in the middle of the river, that somehow people won't be able to cross or it'll make it more dangerous. And that's what we've seen. It has made it more dangerous. Now, has it stopped anybody from crossing? You know, I don't think so. I think probably even more dangerous is the, are these reams of concertina wire laid in the bed of the river. I'll stop there. It's a lot. You know, I think whenever we have this conversation about, about the border, Lauren, I mean, I think there seems to be two schools of thought. You know, one side is that there's a humanitarian crisis here in the sense of the treatment of people trying to have an opportunity to something better. And then on the other side is what is viewed as a security threat. Like, you know, the other side of this, all that being said, though, 
there's data coming in, including a, a recent piece that you wrote, that the percentage of people coming in, there's the numbers of people coming entering the United States has dropped noticeably to the tune of about 70%. Aside from some of the examples you just gave, are there some other factors that are playing a role? Because this seems to be a, I don't know, necessarily a victory for the Biden administration, but something seems to be happening at the border that is causing a reduction and a shift in terms of um, in terms of immigration. What do you attribute all that to? Yeah. So, you know, we have seen the numbers started to tick up a little bit again, but going back to um, the wake of the end of Title 42, I think that might have been around the last time that we talked. Everyone who wasn't on the border was expecting a massive rush. And, and that's not what happened, in part because the, the funny thing about Title 42 was always that it was like a revolving door. You could cross the border in between ports of entry, which is an unlawful crossing, although it is lawful to ask for asylum once you've done so. Um, but under Title 42, you could be very quickly returned and there was no um, consequence at all if you were, you know, if you were found to have, have crossed the border illegally and you didn't have any kind of asylum claim. Well, a couple of things happened. When Title 42 ended, the Biden administration first added a punishment to that. So we go back to the old Title VIII system, where if you cross the border unlawfully and you are found to not have a claim and you are returned, you end up with like a five-year ban, sometimes longer than that. And you have that crossing on your record. So if you cross a second time, it can be considered a felony and you can be prosecuted. We know that the Obama, Trump, um, the Obama and Trump administrations did a massive number of prosecutions of migrants, and that was like another era. All right. Um, so there's that. So there's the punishment. So that's one part. The second part, Nick, is that the Biden administration opened up what it likes to call lawful pathways. Okay. So these are additional ways to reach the border, to cross the U.S. border without crossing in between ports of entry. So one of those ways is through the CBP-1 cell phone app. It's like, a, it's like an app on your cell phone and you get into it and you can make a claim. You can make a request and then show up at the bridge at an, at an appointed time. Now, just because you get the appointment, it doesn't mean you get asylum. It doesn't mean you get a chance to enter the United States um, beyond showing up at the border and being afforded an opportunity to say, this is who I am, this is what, you know, this is the relief that I think I'm eligible for. People are being held. If they are found to not be eligible, they are being removed under expedited removal. Again, it comes with that punishment. Every other day or every two days, there are planes leaving El Paso um, filled with hundreds of migrants from Guatemala, from Haiti, from other countries, um, who are being returned. So things have changed dramatically. Um, you use the word victory. I think it's very hard for anyone in government to declare victory um, on matters of immigration, which are ever changing and super dynamic. But, you know, have the numbers dropped to a manageable level, at least here in El Paso? The answer is yes. You know, Lauren, I, I love when people come on this show and they feel like they're talking too much. And it's like, you, it's a podcast, one. And two, you're the subject matter expert. This is why we have you on, because you've been saying some things there. I want to give a little bit more space to it, because I had written out a question for you about Governor Abbott. And sometimes, you know, I live in the state of Florida, so sometimes 
it could be uh, people that listen to the show or watch the show could say, you guys are too hard on the red state governors, right? Because of certain policy or things like that. Nick, don't make a face. You know, sometimes, sometimes maybe we are, maybe we are. But let's ask somebody that's covering a governor right now that's fighting up against the Biden administration. I want to give you a little bit more space to what you said before about, um, you know, the lawsuit that the Biden administration filed against Governor Abbott. We've seen, you know, some of people would call the political theater around the the busing of migrants to different parts of D.C., Delaware and stuff like that. What is it about Governor Abbott's obsession with getting back at the Biden administration? Is he justified with some of this stuff? Can you just take us through the relationship and how it's escalated with this recent action with the stuff with the buoys? Yeah, it, it's a hard question to answer, Mike, because. I don't want to speculate about the governor's true intentions, his stated intention with Operation Lone Star is to secure the border. Now, what that means and what it really truly looks like, um, I think, is like a moving target, right? What does a secure border mean? I mean, I know that this is something that Border Patrol has wrestled with. Like, how do you gauge the efficacy of what Border Patrol does? They like to say that they are like aiming for operational control of the border. We have a more than 2,000 mile border. It is so big. It is so vast. Um, and what's incredible is that we have a friendly neighbor. I mean, I sometimes watch the news out of Europe and look at the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and think, I wonder why politicians in the United States think that it's okay to be provocative around Mexico or talk about a potential invasion of Mexico. And we know that that some of that language has been thrown around when what we truly have is a partner and a friend in Mexico. Yes, a sovereign nation that does not always see things the way that we do. Um, but we have this, this exceptionally long border. And the steps that Abbott has taken, remember Texas has the biggest chunk of that 2,000 mile um, border. We have more than 1,000 miles in Texas of, of shared border with Mexico. Um, is not made it harder to reach that border, but it's made it more dangerous to take those last steps. We do know that risk and danger are rarely um, they rarely factor into people's decisions about whether or not to make the final leap. So how can I explain this? Um, Y'all, I was out on the New Mexico-Mexico border just a few weeks ago. And in the El Paso region, that is where we are seeing the most deaths, the most deaths that we have seen in 20 years, I think, um, if possibly ever. The temperature here is feeling like Arizona right now. It was 112 degrees yesterday. At the New Mexico border, the border wall is 30 feet high um, in much of it. There's still a little piece of 18-foot border. And we went out with the Sunland Park Fire Department. These are not Border Patrol guys, but they do work. They work in a community at the border. And I saw these rope ladders, like these makeshift rope ladders, hanging off this 30-foot border wall. Do you know how dangerous it is to fall from 30 feet high? onto hard packed sand or to even walk the mile through the desert that will get you to highway nine or um, a road where someone will pick you up in, I mean, 80 degrees, let alone hundred degrees. 
I spoke to the medical examiner in New Mexico who told me that one of the bodies that they reviewed was on sand that was 150 degrees. So I can't stress enough that the, the issue of undocumented immigration or unlawful immigration or asylum seekers, depending on who you're talking to and, 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 and which population you want to look at, um, I can't, um, I can't stress enough that simply building taller obstacles, placing floating obstacles, sharpening the wire, sharpening the wall, anything that you could do, you can run the gamut of like medieval, medieval things at the border and people are still going to take that last step. So I think it's interesting if we could if we could move like the national debate around ways that improve people's lives or uh, you know clearly the Biden administration's approach to lawful plat pathways there 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 is criticism to be had of that approach and and I can enumerate some of that here but when you open other doors safer doors and you create a mechanism that allows people to make their claim safely, they will choose that. And that's why we've seen the numbers drop. There are still people showing up at the border, but they're they're getting in a different line, if that makes sense, when before there was no line. And so why are we seeing people crossing at the Eagle Pass area? It's because for whatever reason in that area or for the particular nationalities that are crossing there, the app isn't working or they're unable to, to access those doors that have been opened in other parts of the border. It's just not a perfect system. But I don't know if you saw, if y'all saw the images um, shot by my colleague, um, Omar Ornelas, um, and other uh, colleagues um, from Texas within Gannett of migrants like passing their children over the razor wire to safety. You know, my colleague Rick Jervis went and interviewed folks and to see the photos of um, of children with like these lacerations on their body stapled together at a hospital um, in Eagle Pass because like, you know, the ER was too busy to sew them up. Um, it's it's really dramatic and alarming and will show what what people are willing to do when I mean, you have to really think what did they think their alternative was that drove them to do this? I don't know. I don't remember what your question was, Mike. It's just, it's, okay. it's so dramatic. I go down the rabbit hole. No, it's okay. It was, it was really, I mean, again, about governor Abbott and this relationship that we see as a public uh, perception that it's very contentious and the two of them, there's, there's no solutions. And, you were talking about how he is treating Texas with this sovereignty, right? This is my home and we operate most of the border. And so we're going to do things our way. But as everyone knows, there could be a violation of those buoys based on a federal law, right? So like, yeah, sure, you own Texas, but the rest of us here, you know, I've got to oversee the whole country. So is the relationship what is being perceived or do you feel like Governor Abbott's really doing the best, you know, for Texans out there in terms of securing the border. Well, let's uh, let's go back to why we even know about what's going on in Eagle Pass and why it's become a national story. The Houston Chronicle broke the story about um, 
two Texas Department of Public Safety officers who had a crisis of conscience, who spoke out and said, we want to secure the border, but not at the cost of being inhumane to children and families. That's where all of this came from. That's why we know about what's happening was because, I mean, obviously the imagery of the buoys, but um, but this became a national story in part because these two Texas DPS officers spoke out. Now, Texas DPS is not um, filled with left-leaning Democrats, okay? These are officers who are, you know, sworn to serve and protect and who serve the governor, um, you know, who have been engaged in the border, um, in border enforcement through Operation Lone Star for a couple of years now. So for two officers to speak out, I think was telling. Um, the second part of your question had to do with where these buoys are in the lawsuit. The Biden administration waited a long time because I was writing back in January, as I mentioned, about the concertina wire laid in the river channel. So the International Boundary and Water Commission, which doesn't ever have the limelight, nor does it ever want the limelight. It's this very bureaucratic international organization that's made up of the U.S. and Mexico. And it was the organization that was created when the actual borderline was drawn. And it's the organization that typically resolves disputes. And I'll give you like um, an example that's actually not that far off. In the 1960s, the Rio Grande River changed course in the El Paso Juarez area. And there was like, a, I'm sorry, it was before the 1960s. It was a few decades earlier. No, it was a hundred years earlier now that I'm remembering. Um, and it took a hundred years to resolve a dispute about where the border really was in between El Paso and Juarez. And so um, this international organization is very careful, both sides of it, the Mexican and the U.S. side, of making sure that the water runs smoothly, that the borderline doesn't change, and anything that gets in the river that could change the river channel is a big deal. And so Mexico has filed a complaint, um, as y'all probably know, when th those buoys were laid, um, you know, saying that this is on the borderline, part of this belongs to Mexico, and anything that interferes with that river water could theoretically change the US-Mexico border. And so it is a big deal. And, and, you know, we saw the Department of Justice get involved. The Biden administration has not, as far as I know, spoken out against Governor Abbott very specifically. They seem to be preferring to speak through the Justice Department. Um, you know, I think there's nothing more that Governor Abbott might like in a, from a political perspective than to pick a fight with the president of the United States. Um, but, you know, we're heading into an election year. It's going to be a long season. Mike, we know your governor has taken several pages out of the um, Abbott playbook. So, yeah, I just think we're going to probably see more of this, not less. We, we saw the, to, to, to wind up here, um, you know, Governor Abbott's re reaction to the filing of that lawsuit was essentially bring it on. I mean, I think he specifically said, see, we'll see you in court. On the subject of politics, you know, right now we're seeing Republicans obviously um, in charge of the House or having House majority, um, you know, continuing to pursue um, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. Where, from just a political standpoint, legal standpoint, just from your reporting, 
it seems like this is a matter of Republicans wanting to blame the Secretary of Homeland Security for what's going on at the border, despite numbers, as we talked a moment ago, continuing to reduce. Is this really a case of political grandstanding or in your estimation, when you observe the 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 work and the tenure of the current Secretary of Homeland Security, are there reasons to be concerned about his actions? And is there any merit? Is there any merit really to Republicans or, or what Republicans are pursuing in, in the House? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to say whether, you know, I haven't I haven't reviewed whatever evidence they might have. What I can say is that as far as what I understand about the way the U.S. government works, I mean, you, impeachment, there has to be wrongdoing. It can't be that you don't like the policies. Um, I don't recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, another DHS secretary being targeted even when policies were quote unquote not working. So let's say, you know, people, the number of migrants arriving at the Southwest border is increasing, or I I, I don't know that that's grounds for impeachment. Regardless, it's all, um, it's all beside the point that we all know to be true, which is that Congress is the body that is supposed to act on immigration. And any time the executive, whether Democrat or Republican, makes all of the immigration policy, it's going to be all from the point of view of that executive. Um, It's never going to be comprehensive because there's only a certain number of levers that the executive can pull versus Congress acting to overhaul our work visa system. You know, I don't know if you'll caught, I did a story, a couple of months ago now about a small Texas town that's a hundred miles north of the, of the border. It's called Alpine. It's a sweet little town. It's near Marfa. Y'all may have heard of Marfa. Um, and we spoke almost exclusively to Republicans. Okay. We're talking about ranchers, restaurant owners, you know, it's a, it's a funky little town, but it's, it's fairly conservative um, and, and definitely um, votes Republican. And to a person, what I heard was that there was a massive labor shortage. You know, the labor shortage that we see at the national level is really playing out in rural communities in, you know, like exacerbated ways. Like we visited with a woman who owned a big restaurant and a hotel and was opening up another hotel. And she was bussing tables. She was delivering food in her restaurant that she owns, one of the biggest in town. Um, because you just couldn't find workers. And we know that a hundred miles South folks are literally banging down the door looking for work. Now the executive really can't do anything about that. The laws are the laws. You can't come to the U S border and say, Hey, I'd like a work visa. Um, That's not a thing. It's not a thing. Could it be a thing? It could, but that would require Congress to act. And so this community was clamoring, um, you know, calling their congressman, Republican Tony Gonzalez. Uh, Tony Gonzalez, in fact, a few weeks later, he had been working for several months on some legislation um, that would increase the the accessibility of work visas. Um, same with Democrat Veronica Escobar. I mean, there are ideas on both sides of the aisle. If we continue to let the executive branch handle it all, I think we're going to expect more, you know, we should expect more of the same. We should expect Republicans to hate whatever Democrats come up with and for Democrats to hate whatever Republicans come up with. 
it's in the halls of Congress that compromise is supposed to be hammered out. No, I mean, that's seriously very well said. And I think producer Tim knows which clip to use for social media. Um, Lauren, before we let you go, I did want to give you some space here because as our show has grown exponentially in audience size, some people may have not heard you the previous times you've been on this program. And some of the great work that you do, you can go check out her work over at the El Paso Times. But some of the articles that you've written, some of these personal stories, you know, you, you covered the, the fire in Juarez at that detention center, and you told us some stories of people that have fallen from some of these heights, trying to climb uh, these walls just to secure a spot here in this country and, and flee the countries that are, are have so much oppression and so much violence, whatever it is that they're trying to get away from to come here. I would love to give you some space right now to talk about some of these articles, some of these things you've covered. How does it feel for you, for the people listening right now? You live in the border town of El Paso. You're covering this stuff all the time. Take us through like your emotions in covering this, some stories that have really just kind of left a mark on you that you want to leave a mark with our audience. Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a big question. Um, you know, I've been covering the border off and on for 20 years um, and the U.S.-Mexico relationship and relationships in the region for about as long. And, you know, it's it's not easy. What I can say is that the rhetoric and um, the heated language that we all hear on the political, the national political stage, um, or in Austin, or in Tallahassee, or in any number of state capitals, um, including, uh, you know, also in Washington, D.C., is that it, it often feels very far removed from the experience here on the border. Um, it's hard, Mike, because you're asking me this just a, a few days after our August 3rd, the, the, the anniversary of the August 3rd, 2019 massacre at an El Paso Walmart when you had... Um, a young white man from a Dallas suburb drive 10 hours to El Paso wanting to kill people of color, Hispanics, Mexicans, and ultimately killed 23 people, um, some of whom were Mexican. And this is a place that celebrates its binational culture, its binational heritage, and I can tell you as someone who moved here, I didn't grow up here. You know, I'm originally from Boston. My family's from New York. I come from an Italian immigrant background um, and I'm very proud of that. And yet I found an amazing place here that is so incredibly welcoming and sees so much richness in the kind of cultural melting pot. And that's that's even with all of the kind of quote unquote trouble, if you will, like it it's it's hard to live in a militarized zone and El Pasoans have direct contact with the people who are migrating here. Um, and people often see themselves because they aren't far removed from their own immigration story. I think sometimes in other parts of the United States, people are maybe farther removed from their immigration story. But if, if you aren't native American here, You've got an immigration story somewhere back there in the, you know, in the closet, in the files, um, you know, in the ancestry.com <laughs> account. Um, and so folks are on a journey um, here. And, and yes, 
I see, I get all of the press releases. I see all of the good work that Border Patrol and U.S. Customs and Border Protection does to protect this country um, from bad actors. There are folks who have criminal records who are trying to come into the country. The vast majority do not. And so, you know, um, this work isn't easy. It does require a balance, not not everyone who comes here with an asylum claim has a legitimate asylum claim. Not everyone who comes here is a criminal. What I can tell you is that almost every single person that I talk to has a story of hoping for a better life and seeing possibility in the United States. And I think that's really cool. Like, I think that it's really inspiring to talk to so many people who just see possibility here, you know, and hope for a better life. And so, you know, I think we have to keep our eyes open and our ears open and really, really listen to people in order to find ways so that immigration is orderly. Does anybody want families crossing a river, swimming across a dangerous river, climbing a 30 foot wall to get here? I mean, I think I would hope that both Republicans and Democrats could agree that that we don't want to see families put in excessive danger. Very well said. This is why we have you on the program. She's a friend of the pod, Lauren Villagrand. You can check out all of her amazing work over at the El Paso Times. Go subscribe to the El Paso Times, support local journalism. You know, Nick is nodding his head. The two of us do that. Check out all of Lauren's great work. Lauren, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. Always at any beckoning and call, Twitter DM, text message. You are the best. Truly continue success to you. Please stay safe. Thank you. This episode of the podcast is presented by the good folks over at Nerd Focus, the original think drink that will boost your energy, concentration, memory, and focus. My co-host Nick Saveri right now, sometimes he loses focus. Sometimes he has trouble concentrating. Sometimes his energy is down. Nick, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you need to pep you up here? Because is your energy down? Do you have tr- struggle focusing? I have two kids and I work from home mostly. Of course I have trouble focusing. Yeah, I, I'm always looking for you know other opportunities, you know, to try to get my focus back. I mean, coffee is great, but it's not sustainable to just drink nothing but coffee all day. So I'm always looking for options. Well, Nick, I have an option for you because the good folks at Nerd Focus over there, and you can check out nerdfocus.com or hit the link in our show notes, which is going to have a special discount applied at checkout. But this drink, it's an energy drink that helps boost stamina and strength. Enhance your focus and concentration. It ramps up motivation, provides alertness and stimulation. And most importantly, Nick, it improves your mood. Infused with powerful nootropics and performance boosting nutrients and available in over 800 retailers throughout the United States, Nerd has proven itself to be the go-to drink to increase your mental acuity, focus, concentration, memory, and energy. Stop what you're doing right now. Head to the link in our show notes. You're going to get a discount for ordering this energy drink. There's a nerd in everyone. Go check out the good folks over at Nerd Focus. Our thank yous there to Lauren Villagrand, fantastic immigration reporter over at the El Paso Times. Love talking to Lauren. Seriously, folks, go check out a lot of her work. Well, all of her work, first off, at elpasotimes.com. You can read some of these articles. Uh, She does a great job covering it. If you're coming into it cold, and you just happen to watch one news segment about the border and you're like, I'd love to learn more about it. 
Here's a reporter that lives there, is breathing there, covering there every day. She tells us this all the time. She can run into Mexico. It's 10 minutes. It's a 10 minute run from her house. So go check out all of Lauren's work over at the El Paso Times. All right, Nick, in our final segment here, the biggest story that happened here in America, no, not what we talked about in the first segment, the former president getting indicted for a third time, potentially a fourth coming up. No, that's not the big story, Nick. The big story is a battle that may be taught in the history books, in history classes, in schools, the school of TikTok, the school of Twitter, in the futures to come. And that's the battle that happened in Montgomery, Alabama. Let's hear from the local news and how they covered this incredible battle between a black security guard and a few trashed white folks, and I mean trash like drunk, that decided to get into a little scuffle and then the entire town jumped in. Take a listen to this. Tonight, police continue their investigation, reviewing video to figure out how it all went down. I visited the riverfront today to see how the community is taking it all, and some families are concerned. Multiple people jumping in and throwing punches in this brawl along the Montgomery Riverfront. Viewer video shows the fight playing out just feet from the Alabama River. With this being Montgomery and the birthplace of civil rights with a lot of his history, um, it's unfortunate that we make news now for the wrong reasons. A witness claims the fight started because a pontoon boat was blocking the dock where a riverboat was trying to park. Soon after, Montgomery police arrived arresting several people. They're combing through cell phone video and security footage in their investigation. Montgomery Mayor Stephen Reed saying this was an unfortunate incident which never should have occurred. As our police department investigates these intolerable actions, we should not become desensitized to violence of any kind in our community. All jokes aside, this fight, if you did not see this on Twitter, on YouTube, as our producer Tim is putting these the fight scenes in this clip, Go run to YouTube, go run to Twitter, TikTok to check this out because it's it's incredible how it escalated so fast. So the on the riverfront, there was a black riverboat riverboat walker, worker, excuse me, if I could speak. Um, he was sitting there talking, as you heard in the news clip, telling the boat that they needed to move because there was another riverboat that was trying to park in one of those spots. Now, again, the white uh, folks that were there, none of them had their shirts on. Obviously, they're out all day boating on the lake in Montgomery there. And so they're getting to a little argument. The security guard is clapping his hands. He's pointing at them what they need to do. It looks like it's just going to be de-escalated because there's a boat across the way, again, of people that are trying to park in that spot. And so and that's filled with a bunch of other black folks that are on there. So all of a sudden you see out of nowhere, the black security guard go back to the, the boat owner and they start talking and the boat owner just pushes him, kind of snuffs his face, we would say in the Bronx. And all of a sudden, a fight ensues. The security guard throws his hat up in the air. And then three other people emerge from the other side of the dock and start jumping onto this black guy. And then all of a sudden, you see folks jumping in the water to swim to the dock. You see a guy come out of nowhere with a chair and start hitting people. Alabama police, as you heard in the clip there, they arrested about six folks. 
um, and they started running through all of this different footage uh, of what happened that day. But people were getting hit with chairs on the dock. One woman got thrown into the water. It was one of the wildest uh, fights ever recorded on video camera. And everybody had clips of it because, again, a big boat, a group of folks were on that boat trying to park in the dock. So all of them had their cell phones out. All of them are recording this in real time. The dock has camera footage that's out there. This was one of the wildest scenes ever. Maybe a WWE Royal Rumble uh, could be a wilder. But again, that's stage. This was not stage. The one big thing for me, Nick, before I turn to you about your takes on the brawl in Montgomery there um, is a lot of people have made it like this huge racial thing. Now, you heard the guy in the clip there about the racial undertones of Montgomery, Alabama, the Civil Rights Act in 1963, as somebody tweeted out in this Um it's it's tough to ignore that, but also it's tough to jump to that conclusion that these folks were picking on this black security guard because he was black and the white folks that were on the boat were trying to move that. I want to move past that because I don't think race was at the core of this, even though it was a group of white guys getting beat up by a bunch of black people that jumped in because their guy was getting beat up. What'd you make of the entire fight as it broke out? It was one of the wildest things, but I wanted to get our takes on this because I have never seen anything like this and the way it got covered really on social media. The national networks didn't really pick up on this story as much as social media drove home about this story. And everywhere you went, thousands, millions of views across TikTok, Twitter, IG, Facebook about this. What'd you make of the incident, the, the bra at the palace of Montgomery over on the river, on the riverbanks there? <laughs> you just... You actually gave the analogy that came to me when I think of it. Now, what's now known, of course, is the mouse of the palace back in the early 2000s was before Twitter existed. And the fight between the, the Detroit Pistons and the Indiana Pacers, specifically what you know played out in the stands, is considered one of the great what if moments of Twitter existed. So, yeah, Mike, as you talked about it, this has been all over Twitter. It's been, you know, been the subject of jokes, commentaries, you know, shout out to a friend of ours, of course, um, Corey on Twitter, you know, at Big Corey Zero Zero, right? Um, you know, folks doing all kinds of funny commentaries. To your point, though, about the origin of it, I don't know what's in the heart of those folks who attacked that security guard. I can tell you that the people who reacted, you know, the, the, you know, the black people, the black men who decided to, who came to the aid or swam to the aid of, you know, of this black security guard. This was definitely a matter of race for them. You know, seeing one of their own being attacked by white people. Yeah. I mean, that brings up all kinds of imagery that's distasteful and, and people took action leading to, of course, you know, chairs being thrown and you know, all kinds of wildness. And it really comes down to, you know, a case of, you know, what do you do in that moment to try to calm this down? And we really didn't see it, I mean, especially when you begin with, you know, an individual altercation between one person who's having a problem with what a security guard person said and what and how, whatnot, and then it becomes physical. Then you suddenly have people jumping in and then you have other people jumping in or swimming in and then just becomes, I mean, just essentially a fight to your point about you know, where this was being discussed. You're absolutely right. It, it was all over social media, specifically Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. Uh, my parents still are. But um, the thing that I stood with yesterday as I saw that video and all the jokes and all the commentary, that really seemed like not the death of, but a real big gut punch to threads. You know, 
that that app that Instagram put out that's supposed to be, you know, the Twitter killer or whatever. And it had a great night of engagement, you know, myself included. Everyone created our accounts and thought, well, well, bleep Elon and whatever. Last night proved that Elon is still getting it right with Twitter. I'm not necessarily, I'm not a fan of Elon Musk. Um, you know, we've talked at length on this show. We've had people, we've had a person on this show talk about some of his business dealings. But I give him credit because the brand is still there. It's not even called Twitter anymore, folks. Like I had someone the other day tell me, hey, the app on my phone has changed. It's just now a black box with an X on it. You could call this whatever you want. You can call it McDowell's. Shout out to people who got that joke. Yeah. It doesn't matter because people went to it. There was not a single person yesterday who in the midst of this conversation, talking about the video, the back and forth, folks, the, tw- the, the text exchange between Mike and I was endless and you know the one thing neither of us ever talked about or went to look at or whatever threads we just went back and forth between instagram twitter what have you yeah last night may have been the death knell for what seemed to be another attempt at trying to swing back efforts toward another social media app so say what you want about elon but he may have been the big winner last night other than the folks who landed a, a KO against those folks at the Battle Battle of Montgomery. Let me tell you something. The vicious chair shots and now the parody videos that have been done of people. There's a great parody video out there of a group of friends, white and black mixed, that were at a public pool just doing a reenactment of this. It's not funny because people got hurt in this stuff and how it all started. It seems like, again... You know, some arrogance on the part of of the owner of the of the boat, you know, not wanting to move his boat. Um, And we don't know, again, all the causes. Police are still doing their investigation. But the biggest takeaway I had was like like what you said, everyone ran to Twitter. I didn't run the threads yesterday to kind of find out about this. And it shows the power of social media and how things can take off and spread like wildfire in either direction. So anyway, we leave it there about that story. If you want to go read more about it, go check it out about what happened in Montgomery, Alabama. For this show, video portions of our interview. If you want to check out our interview with Lauren Biagrand, go check it out over on YouTube channel. Type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. Hit the subscribe button for me while you're there. Audio podcast platforms you know by now. Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody who listens to us on Good Pods. And shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Can't do it without each and every one of you that listens into this program. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And sure to swim a mile wide if I have to to protect Mike in a fight not that he ever really needs it. I'm Nick Saberi. I appreciate that. We'll see everybody next time.